welcome to the How Not to Screw Up Your Kids podcast. So, pour yourself a cuppa, find a comfy seat, and enjoy the conversation. This is episode 92, and we're doing things a little bit differently. We thought it'd be a really good idea, actually, to kind of get a compilation of some of the best bits, the most popular podcast episodes that I've had so far, and we're a year and a half in. So we've put a bit of a compilation together of those the ones that you download the most, the ones that are most listened to, that are probably a great reminder to you of some of the stuff that we've covered. So we've put that together. So I hope you enjoy it. And the free resource that we've pulled together is a great combination of all of those best bits. So as always, head over to my free resource library, drmaryhand.com forward slash library, where you'll find the link to download the resource All you need to do is pop in your email address and you'll get instant access not only to this week's resource, but all the other free resources across all my other podcast episodes. As ever, if you enjoy this compilation, then I would love it if you can follow and review this podcast so that others can find us and we can spread the love. So until next time, here's a snapshot of all the most popular episodes so far. Enjoy. Let's start off with the three main reasons why children have an emotional meltdown. These, in my view, are the three main reasons. The most common reasons are that they are having difficulties communicating their needs or their emotions. So they're trying to explain how they feel and what they need, but they're struggling to do it. So instead, we get an emotional outburst. Or we have a child who's craving attention. And I think we need to remember with attention that any attention is attention. So sometimes these emotional outbursts won't get our children positive attention, but they don't mind. If they want attention, if they're feeling neglected, if they're feeling that they need our time, any attention, good or bad, is better than none. And we have to remember when we're talking particularly about things to do with attention, it's not what we think. It is, you know, quite often I have these situations where I talk to families and they'll say, but I've spent the last sort of two, three hours with my child playing games and they're still having these emotional meltdowns. And we need to sort of take a bit of a step back and we need to check in whether the attention that our child has got is attention that they value rather than attention we're giving. We can come back to that. Um, And then the final reasons why children tend to have emotional meltdowns is this idea of autonomy or independence. So children are mini humans. They've got their own thoughts, desires, wishes, aspirations. And sometimes their emotional meltdown really relates to their desire, their need, their want to be able to make their own choices. Now, it often when we get these emotional um, meltdowns, it relates to the fact that they're struggling to communicate their needs. But these kind of, if we package them all up together, are generally the main reasons why children have their emotional meltdown. And what we've got to remember is, and I, I talk about this quite a lot, is we have to detach ourselves as parents from this idea of what my, what our child's actual age is. So I talk about the difference between our children's chronological age 
and their developmental age. So their chronological age, posh word for basically, it's the day, it's their birthday. So we might have a child who is five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, sixteen by their birth date. So that's the age they're given by birth. But they also have what I call a developmental age. And we have to get our heads around this as parents because you might have a 13-year-old who in your mind is behaving like a five-year-old in a given situation. But that could be their developmental age in that moment. So our children have a developmental age across all sorts of things. Their emotional ability, their social skills, their attention, their um, memory, their literacy, their numeracy, their physical development. So if you imagine that our children, as they acquire, as they learn, as they grow, they develop across various different areas. So you may well have a child who is seven by their birthday, but emotionally they might act like a four or five-year-old. But their communication in terms of their vocabulary may be much more like an eight-year-old. So And their physical ability might be more like a nine-year-old. So what happens is when we look at our children's profiles, they can be sort of up and down, bumpy, spiky in some ways because they have their actual birthday, but then they have these various different developmental ages. So I want to go back, first of all, to this notion of equality. As parents, we are desperate to make sure that we treat our children equally. And this, I think, is where we often go wrong. We see our children all go through different stages and have different needs. When our children are just babies, we're constantly feeding them, changing nappies, taking, you know, they take up a huge amount of our time. Yet as teens, they don't necessarily demand that same level of constant attention in them being reliant on us. And so we're often racked with guilt because we feel we don't spend the right amount of time with each child. And that can sometimes be an age thing and it can sometimes be a developmental thing or a period of time that your children are going through. So maybe one of your children seems to take up all your time because they worry and you're constantly needing to give them attention because you're coercing and encouraging them. Or maybe they need us to do everything with them because they're lacking in confidence for some reason. I want to challenge you to change your way of thinking and the way that you communicate with your children and ask you to focus on need and not equality. So rather than thinking or even talking to our children using the language of equality, let's change the narrative to needs and differences. So we might say to one of our children, I love you because we share a passion for cooking. We both love trying new recipes, even if that they don't always work, rather than what we usually say, which is I love you all equally. When we get asked that question of who do you love more? When we change our narrative to one of needs, so we've talked about differences. So rather than saying we love all of our children equally, we can talk about the differences about why we particularly like spending time with one child because we love doing cooking with them and another child because they share our passion for riding bicycles or jumping on a trampoline or reading books or watching a particular television programme. So we can use that when we're talking about differences. But when we're often, I guess, really dealing with the day-to-day things, I want us to change our narrative to one of needs. So we might say, I know it feels as though I'm always with your sister or brother, and you don't get much of your time. Your sister is very young and needs me to help her eat, go to the toilet, just as you did when you were her age. 
We get our special time at bedtime when we cuddle for stories because you love me reading to you rather than necessarily trying to spend equal amounts of time with each child and then feeling guilty. It's changing that narrative in our own mind, but also changing the narrative of what we say to our children. And the difference might seem subtle, but it's an important distinction. Our children go through different life stages and they need our time and attention at different stages. Trying to split our time equally sets us up to fail each and every time. When we focus on need instead, we help our children understand that when they need us, we're going to be there for them, but that the landscape within the family in terms of where our time goes is constantly changing, constantly evolving, and isn't meant to be equally equally split, but meant to be, as a parent, we're responding to time. What we want to do is we want to have a conversation with our children about this, this change in what we're going to be doing, and it's called a talk through. So it always starts with my special phrase, which I would love you all to use just because I find it the best way to start these sorts of conversations. So it's a quiet moment where you can get together as a family and you start with, I've noticed that, we've noticed that. We've noticed that We're not all helping out around the house. And what happens is mummy and daddy end up nagging you all of the time to tidy up after yourself. You don't do what we ask you straight away. And then we get cross and it ends up with us shouting and everyone is then unhappy. We've noticed that in the mornings when it comes to getting ready for school, there's a lot of us having to ask you time and time again to put your shoes on. And then we get cross and you get upset and it's really not the atmosphere we want first thing in the morning. We've noticed that when we ask you to come off your electronic devices, we have to ask you lots and lots of times. We find ourselves raising our voices and shouting and getting really cross, which creates a bit of an atmosphere and it ruins the rest of the day. You get the idea. It starts with a, we've noticed that, and you talk through the scenario that is going to change, whether that's contributing at the house, whether that's the change in terms of electronic device usage and coming off, whether that's coming to the dinner table, whether that's going up to bed, whatever it might be, it starts with, we've noticed that, I've noticed that. Um, The reason why I encourage you to use that particular phrase is it takes us out of finger pointing and accusation mode and it comes across much more as an an observational I've noticed that this is something that we've noticed as a family together and it's something that we want to talk about together so that's the introductory piece and there's always needs to be a little bit of humility from us as parents is that we have to acknowledge that we do some nagging that we may raise our voice maybe you are a parent listening to this and you have never shouted at your children and I would phenomenally congratulate you for that because you've done a better job than me because I have regularly shouted at my children. So it's that we need to be humble in some ways and acknowledge that sometimes we don't always behave in a way that we would like to. And the reason for having the conversation is that we want things to be different and we want to have that discussion together. So we've noticed that we acknowledge our part in that and we, we're basically setting the scene for something being different. Now, depending on what it is, will depend on how you then approach the next thing. So for example, if we're, if you are committing to your one thing being everyone helping in the home and a contribution, then you need to set the scene about the fact that this is our family home. We all live here. It's a place that we love and cherish and we all need to make a contribution to its upkeep. That's quite a clear 
this is what needs to happen. And in the same way, when we're talking about bedtime routines, we're, we're being clear that we need to go up to bed and we can't continue to have in and out of bedrooms or constant requests to come upstairs. So you're setting the absolute tone, but what you're then doing is opening up the discussion to a little bit more problem solving. If we know that everyone needs to make a contribution to the upkeep of our home, how may we as a family make sure that that happens? If we know that we need to be upstairs and going through our bedtime routine with our lights out at 8 p.m., then that's an absolute. But what we're open to as a family is a discussion around how can we make that happen where we remove some of the friction. If we know that we need to leave the house and everybody needs to be ready to get into the car or to begin to walk or get on their bicycles by a certain time and we're having these frictions in terms of getting ready, what might we do? We're trying to encourage a, this is the definitive boundary that I'm setting as your parent because that's my role to scaffold, but I'm opening up the design of that build, that home to you as our children so that you can then input and then together as a family, we can problem solve and come up with a new set of routines, a new structure to how we might go about the next step. So it's really important that we empower our children to feel that they have a voice, that they are able to have a say in reaching that end goal, in reaching that end target, because we've set the framework, but we're surely open to how we get there. And what I find is where we remove the dictatorial aspect. So, you know, I'm your parent. This is what this is how things are going to be. We're going to do this, then we're going to do that. And if you don't do this, there's going to be a punishment of that. But instead, if we say, look, this is what needs to happen. This is the end goal. But how we get there, I'm pretty flexible with. And I'm really keen that as a family, we have a conversation about how can we make best make this happen within the framework. We're not simply allowing our children to make every kind of decision and every choice. But what we're trying to do is help them help us as a family come up with a with a definitive routine. We need to switch out of the traditional power dynamics of I am the adult and you will do what I tell you and you are the child and you don't have a say. Now I know that in lots of ways we don't really play into that power dynamic as often as we like to think but it does happen when we are in this scenario where we are just telling our children. Now sometimes we have to tell our children, sometimes it is bedtime is bedtime. And absolutely, we need to do that. But when we when we look at this particular strategy alongside the giving our children choices when we can, it helps us try and treat our children with that context of them being a mini adult. How can I communicate with my child at what appears to be a more adult to adult level? Clearly, our children are not adults. They're still children. They're there to learn from us. We're there to help and instruct and help them build their building by being the scaffolding but we want to do it in a way that is respectful that that communication is respectful of their desires their wishes their thoughts and their feelings but also communicating back ours so if we go back to the example that I gave around the older teenager coming back from a party we're not doing that power dynamic that so many of us parents will remember from our parents of you know whilst you live under my roof you will follow my rules and in lots of ways that is probably what we're actually doing with our children but we don't need to communicate it in such an authoritarian way 
it, we can communicate it much more from the perspective of actually my role as your parent is to prepare you to live life independently of home. And so the reason why we have some of these rules in place, the reason why you're not able to do exactly what you want whenever you want it, is that I'm helping you make those choices and helping you by helping teach you and for you to learn some of the basic courtesies, values that are really important within our household so that you can then make the decisions as you leave home and you start your own independent life as an adult as to what values are important to you. We know and there is sufficient and pretty robust data that shows emotionally intelligent children and adults have better quality friendships and actually if you're going to look at one single measure or one single factor that is the the biggest factor that contributes to overall happiness, success, and also links into the financial metrics, those who are emotionally intelligent, it wins overall and it wins over and above IQ. So this notion of doing what's best for our children is that when we look at EQ, which is the emotional quotient, so when we talk about IQ, it's our intelligence quotient, really posh word for basically a measure of your general intelligence, your ability to problem solve, lateral thinking, decision making, all of those sorts of things. EQ, which is your ability to understand and then respond appropriately to yours and others' emotions, EQ predicts success far greater than IQ. Because let's think about it, in the world of work, most jobs, most career paths involve people. There are a very, very small number of career paths and jobs and professions that don't require that interaction with people to be successful. And in those cases, EQ doesn't matter doesn't come into it. But probably for about 99% of the careers, 99% of those opportunities and jobs that come out, being able to adapt, respond and react to others and their emotions is much more, you know, those are the careers that are out there. Those are the things that we need to do. And that's what helps build those relationships. That's what helps build those connections. And that's what helps us with our happiness is not only being able to connect to our own emotions, but being able to understand and respond appropriately to others. So this is all about building emotional literacy, talking about emotions at home, not being afraid to use words like, I can see that you're looking worried or that you're angry or that you're frustrated or that you're irritated or that you are jealous. Some of the emotions that I think sometimes we worry about using because we think, oh gosh, if I use the jealous word about their siblings, maybe I'm going to create jealousy or if I use the word anxiety or worry, maybe I'm planting a seed in my child and they're going to become anxious or they're going to worry because I've talked about it. Whereas actually what I hear time and time again when I'm working with children and teens and when I'm working with families is so often our children feel that their emotions are not heard, that we don't validate them. We don't say, I see you and I understand that that's how you're feeling. That doesn't mean that we're taking them down a rabbit hole of creating issues. We're simply saying, I I get it. I get that that's how it makes you feel. Now, that doesn't mean we then sit and wallow in it. It doesn't mean that we get into this 
discriminating between that's a good emotion and that's a bad emotion and you shouldn't feel that way and that's positive and that's negative is simply acknowledging that all emotions are valid we all experience at times jealousy god goodness me i'm 52 yeah i'm still 52 (laughs) i'm 53 soon hence why the kind of slight hesitation i'm 52 and i still feel jealous at times i get feel envy we all do their part of a normal human emotion. Now, obviously, it is not helpful if I sit and wallow in envy and jealousy and that drives this sort of unhealthy need in me. That's not healthy, but I can experience that emotion. People can acknowledge that I'm experiencing that emotion in that time and then I can move on. So it's really important that we encourage our children to connect to their emotions and that it's okay that they can recognize those emotions, that they can label those emotions and they know for them what they might need to do in that moment. The first skill that your children need you to teach them before they become an adult is how to make small talk. Our children don't necessarily have that skill and as adults quite often we don't necessarily have this skill. But it's the small talk that we have maybe when we're standing in line in a queue or the small talk that we might need to have when we're in a group situation or when we're meeting people for the first time. Maybe it's a drinks party that we go to. Maybe it's a new school or university or a setting that we find ourselves in where we have to be able to sort of have conversations with people who we don't know. And it's such a I think it's such a sort of it's a skill that we actually have to practice. Some people seem to be supremely capable in making small talk and don't seem to have an issue about that at all. And other people really struggle with it because small talk isn't just the ability to spark a conversation. It's how you hold yourself, the ability to make eye contact, the lack of self-consciousness and that kind of icky feeling that you often get caught up in and that children particularly get caught up in that I think in lots of ways, we take that into adulthood. But if we, if our children are taught this from a really young age, then quite often, if we teach it to them when they're young, they don't have a lot of that ickiness. So, for example, I personally believe my ability to have make small talk and, and have conversations with random people, which is often quite embarrassing for my poor children. But I personally believe that that skill has come from the fact that I was the daughter of a doctor the daughter of an Egyptian doctor. And so we often spent our weekends, most of my weekend recollections when I was a child were that we would go and visit another set of doctors in another part of the country. And I would have to make small talk and play with children. I did not know who they were. They weren't always the same age as me, but I found myself in these situations constantly. And Although I moved school a few times because obviously my father being a doctor working in hospitals, when you get these promotions, you tend to move around the country. So I'm convinced that my ability to have to make small talk is because I was forced into that situation by circumstance, not forced into it in a a contrived artificial way. But the circumstances of that meant that my father often had big gatherings with lots of other doctors who had lots of other children and so I had to kind of create that. We can create these situations either through circumstances, maybe we're a family that 
entertain a lot. Maybe we holiday with other families a lot. Maybe we're members of lots of clubs. Maybe we're members of a church. Maybe we're um, sort of part of a wider community with neighbours and other things. But what is really essential is that we create the environment in which our children are able to practice skills of conversation you know this this notion of small talk so that they can acquire these skills because they're so key to adulthood so much of employment and what we do when we're older involves other people and if we're able to feel comfortable at making small talk having those conversations whether it's about the weather or the latest television program or something politically or just generally having those conversations it means that our children are already set up when they go to interviews and other things that make such a huge thing so how to make small talk I think is an absolute essential skill number seven is look out for opportunities to talk and take them so don't leave it until necessarily that your child is coming to you but you actively look for opportunities and sometimes those opportunities will be very fleeting take them even if it's only a small period of time but you're in the right time it is the right place it's a topic that's appropriate to where your child is at then take that opportunity you never know when the next chance might come to connect and it's those small opportunities of connection that make a huge difference because it's it's almost like a you know, we get a sort of critical mass and a critical tipping point that if we do this regularly, our children then come to us more and more often. It's just about having those opportunities to connect about those more day-to-day conversations that I talked about earlier about kindness, compassion, empathy, friendships, being true to themselves, using their voice, putting themselves in situations that make them feel slightly out of their comfort zone. So it's actively looking for opportunities so that we can instigate those conversations rather than sort of almost waiting for our children to start those conversations with us. Take those opportunities to connect because then when the big conversations come along, our children are much more likely to instigate that with us or we're able to ease into those conversations much, much more easily reframe the situation we often feel that either our headstrong child or maybe our child who is not a headstrong child but just having a headstrong moment that they might be acting willfully and this can monumentally trigger us now my personal view and you may disagree and there may be other people in the parenting space that will massively disagree with me but my genuine belief is that children don't act out of willfulness they act from a need and children desire a certain element of autonomy they desire a certain amount of love and attention and that this can impact the behavior that they have so reframing how your child is behaving in that moment whether you are listening to this and you've got a headstrong child or whether you're listening to this because you're thinking actually how do I tackle situations in which my child is headstrong but reframing that so that we can see and seek to respond to the emotion behind the behaviour rather than viewing their behaviour as being a willful act of belligerence or being difficult, then when we can frame it that way in our mind, then we can be more compassionate in our response. Now, there may be some control happening in their behaviour, but that may be driven by something else. That level of control might be because they're feeling overwhelmed. 
not because they're deliberately trying to make your life miserable or difficult. Our children's ability to interact and assimilate with information might mean that they just feel slightly overwhelmed in a situation. And so the response that they get, whether that's that headstrong, you know, inability to listen or quick-witted response may be as a result of how they're experiencing that situation. So when we when we frame it in that way, rather than that, I've got a child who's being willful, who is challenging my authority as their parent. How dare they? I would never have spoken to my parents like that. All the things that we do for them. That's the sort of narrative that we get ourselves caught in sometimes. And that is the same for every single parent. This isn't just parents of children who are particularly headstrong. That's something that we all go through. And I think if we can regularly catch ourselves, sometimes we don't catch ourselves in the middle of a complete and utter tirade. And I've been there where I have completely lost the plot with my children. And I felt like there's some sort of slightly, you know, this purse, this other Mary hand watching this crazy mummy saying, my goodness me, do you know what you're saying? Can you see what you're doing? So we do do that. But I think where we're able to check in on ourselves regularly, and this is where the whole self-care thing comes in, but when we're able to check in with ourselves regularly and reframe the situation, say, well, I'm responding because my child has just triggered me with their behaviour. And I know that they're not acting willfully. They are communicating a need to me in some shape or form, but I'm just really struggling to see it right now. And in those cases, it's about then removing us from that situation, trying to reduce that battle that clashing and banging of heads but if we can do this on a regular basis then what we can remind ourselves is that this is part of their character and their personality and we shouldn't be actively seeking to change that but instead focusing on how we help them children have got such inquiring and inquisitive minds and sometimes from a time perspective we just answer and respond because that's the right thing at the time but sometimes there's so much it's so much more powerful to help them go through that learning process so when our children go through those periods of time maybe it was just my children where they didn't want to take a coat with them they didn't want to wear their cardigans or they didn't want to wear their raincoats you then give them that decision you're helping them be curious well I think we probably ought to put the raincoat on and I know it feels a bit itchy and annoying because I think if it rains you're going to get wet but if you think if you want to see how it goes then that's fine so we're helping them be curious and learning from their environment and sometimes absolutely it's about us giving them the answer but I think if we can help them explore rather than us restricting and saying no no you mustn't do that we can talk about, you know, well, what might happen if we did that and really kind of help them understand. But where we where possible, it's help them sort of kind of work through that curiosity and find ways of them learning and being that. And that's really about us being creative. And sometimes we don't have the opportunity. We don't have the time. We don't have the space. But I think where we where we do, I think that that's a really crucial one. It's about encouraging that curiosity, encouraging children to sort of feel textures of things, learn different things, take different steps, go down different routes that we know are not necessarily going to be fruitful. But let's see, let's be curious. I wonder whether this person might be doing this. I wonder if that's how they're feeling. I wonder what might happen if we do this. So it's really encouraging them because that helps them again 
with, you know, what's so crucial is that they are so malleable, their brains are so open to discovering and finding things that it is so crucial that we kind of build and encourage that curiosity about what might happen if I do this. This might be what I should do, but what might happen if I do this? What happens if I maybe put cheese with my broccoli? What happens if I might try this food combination? You know, it's that sort of thing. So it's really trying to promote and encourage curiosity within our children, because that just helps with their kind of the next step, which we're going to talk about, is this idea about growth mindset. So this is very much by the work by Carol Dweck and her incredible TED Talk, The Power of Yet. So we really want to promote our children's growth mindset, which links into curiosity, which links into problem solving. And growth mindset simply, and Carol Dweck's work basically comes from this premise that we can learn to do anything. We just need to put the work in rather than a fixed mindset, which tends to see abilities as as very much innate. You are good at maths or you're not. You're a great communicator or you're not. You manage your emotions or you don't. It's this idea and growth mindset is simply this notion that our brain is a muscle, which it absolutely is. And if we exercise it enough, if we repeat certain patterns of behavior, those muscles get stronger and those connections get faster. And so we can learn and we can do anything. 